Hebrews chapter 13, verses 4 through 6. I will be reading from the ESV version. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? May God bless the reading of his word. Morning, Crossbridge. Man, what a morning. <laughs> we wake up, lose an hour of sleep, and then we come to church to have a fire alarm really wake us up. You know, I'm particularly grateful for our many coworkers who are able to roll with the punches. Uh, and, you know, fortunately, some of us have some hot coffee to keep us warm when we were waiting out in the code. Now, on, over the next few weeks, we are finishing up this last chapter in Hebrews. And we've been working through this sermon series, uh, Jesus is Better, the past few months. And our passage this morning focuses uh, specifically on verses 4 to 6. It's continuing this idea of love, right, that Dr. Matt Kim last week preached on. He preached on John 15, talking about how love is a verb. You know, in in Hebrews, as we begin in chapter 13, verses 1 to 3, it, it continues this idea of love, right? Let brotherly love continue and show hospitality to strangers. Remember those who are in prison and those who are mistreated. And, and now as we move into verses 4 to 6, we see two loves being addressed here. Marriage and money. Two very hard topics sometimes for us to, to talk about, to wrestle with. So given that we have been redeemed by God, We've been saved from sin by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. How then do we respond with a sacrifice pleasing to God? You know, the author of Hebrews is, is addressing these two areas that call for sacrifice, a dying to ourself and our desires. And, and we are, of course, to read, uh, to be good listeners of the word, practitioners of the word, to read chapter 13 in light of everything that's come before. Otherwise, what we might get is just, you know, a message about morals and how to be a good person. But all of this is a response in light of what God has done for us. And so we begin in verse 4, and he writes, let, let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. The first point that we see is this. Hold marriage high. Marriage is to be held in honor, it says. He says, consider marriage to be of great worth. It's precious. It's valuable. It's a gift from God. Respect it. Honor it. And I think a, a presumption that's being made here is that marriage is good. And we know from some of Paul's letters that the early church, you know, dealt with false teachers. 
And some of them promoted this, this idea of asceticism. Asceticism, if you've never heard of that term before, uh, to some extent it's this practice of, of voluntary, vol- voluntarily abstaining from certain things like food or other things or denying yourself certain pleasures or desires in order to focus on growing in holiness. And now, if we just take that, you know, that, that's not bad, right? Fasting is good. It's part of our spiritual disciplines. I think some of the youth, you guys fasted together uh, when you guys did your worship and prayer night a week ago. But asceticism kind of takes it a little bit way too far, going as, as far as to forbid certain foods or altogether, or even to forbid marriage. And, and really what was troublesome about it was that the underlying belief was that anything earthly or anything fleshly was bad was evil, and only the, the spiritual, this ethereal, out-of-body out of experience, this spiritual idea was, was good. And so holiness, godliness, a, a relationship with God really only be attained by physical deprivation of these the earthly material desires. But this isn't what Scripture teaches at all. In fact, when we, when we read Scripture in its entirety, we see it actually has a very positive view of, of the body and of, of earth and of the material. This idea of, you know, that we have to give up all these things permanently to obtain holiness comes more from, from Plato or Gnosticism. And, and so what happens is this belief that, that, that the body is, is fleshly and evil, and so we have this warped understanding then of, of purity, of how to achieve purity and, and holiness. Now, on the other hand, too, what we, what we find in this, in this letter is that the social and cultural environment at the time that these early Christians faced was probably one also where the marriage bond was not esteemed, that this marital relationship was maybe even regarded as unnecessary, that it was a barrier to the licentiousness or the debauchery that the wider culture promoted. And so when the author of Hebrews is is giving this instruction, this exhortation to these early Christians and, and to us today to hold marriage high, it's in response, I think, to some of these opposing teachings. Whether it be that that marriage is a, is a hindrance to, to holiness or that marriage is a hindrance to unrestrained indulgence in one's pleasures. Rather, he says, marriage is good and honor it. Hold it high. And I, and I think it's pretty significant that he, he frames it in such a, a, a positive way. Well, he, he's not beginning with you know, don't commit adultery and don't have you know, sex outside of this gift of uh, the covenant of, of marriage. But in, in calling us to hold marriage high, he's presenting marriage as something that is good, something that ought to be celebrated, something that is a gift from God for our mutual well-being a way for us to demonstrate self-sacrifice and to, to picture the gospel to those around us in, a, in the way that we live as husband and wife. And this morning, I, I want us for a moment to dwell on what he's calling us to do, both as, as married folk and as singles. 
Let marriage be held in honor among all. All in the sense of the church, right? The community of believers. Marriage is a gift. It's a good thing. And, and, and I want us to dwell on that. Because I would venture a guess that sometimes we have a hard time believing that marriage is good. We have a difficult time to honor this gift of marriage. Maybe it's because we see our parents fighting all the time, or we see divorces and, and, and marital troubles, or maybe we ourselves have marital issues. When we're fighting with our husband or our wife, and we're arguing back and forth about what seems like the same old thing over and over and over again, rehashing the same old arguments. And in those moments, we might be tempted, we are tempted, to think that marriage is not a great idea. Maybe even more so that marriage to this person in front of me that I'm yelling at and who's yelling at me wasn't that great of an idea. We don't feel that marriage is good because of the, the sin and brokenness that has wreaked havoc on that marriage. And when I say sin and brokenness, I, I don't mean some external third-party force that removes us as a, of our responsibility. I mean sinful and broken individuals, you and I, who are in this committed covenant of marriage, who say things that we shouldn't have said or do things we will later regret doing. When the author of, of Hebrews says, let marriage be held in honor among all, you know, yeah, it's, it's talking about those moments when life is great, when you and your spouse feel like you're newlyweds again, and you're on the same page, you're on cloud nine, but that command applies even, especially even, in the darkest of times. COVID has made marriage hard. Amen. Now, is that true for you this morning? Not to say that marriage was easy before, right? but I think COVID has perhaps introduced compounding factors that tip the scales and, and threaten to break an already feeble foundation, to expose the cracks that may have already been there, to widen them even more. So, you know, one article online cites a couple of these possible factors that, you know, maybe quarantining revealed how much of our marriage was structured around activities, travel, social gatherings, children's activities, and meeting their needs and emotional needs and physical needs. And all these things kept us busy and made it easier for us to avoid certain issues. It made it easier for us to build a marriage that was always on the go such that when life came to a stop because of COVID, our marriage was in danger of following suit. Or perhaps it was the lack of independence and proper space to release stress, right? We're all cooped up under the same roof 24-7. Even going to your office now, which is, you know, maybe a desk in your living room, you know, your spouse is there, you're sharing the same workspace. Maybe it was a challenge of adapting to new roles and routines 
needing to work at home more often now, needing to, to tend to everyone's emotional needs, including your own, and, or the change in family structure, or even the pressure that came from extended family. All of these stress-inducing factors created a pressure cooker of sinful attitudes and behaviors that were just waiting to burst out. And when that happens, maybe in the heat of the moment, we confess we have a hard time believing that marriage is a gift. That's, it is good. Much less holding it high and, and honoring it. So how exactly do we, do we hold it high? And the passage continues with one specific area, right? That, that the marriage bed be undefiled. In other words, to put, put, put it positively, right? Be faithful. Remain faithful to one another. And so there's, there's mention of those who are sexually immoral and those who are adulterous. And two different words, I think, getting at different nuances of perhaps the same thing. Right? It's talking about those who indulge in sexual relationships outside of the marriage bond, whatever those relationships might look like. It's talking about those who are unfaithful to their marriage vows. And so actually, it's talking, it's, it's speaking to those who aren't married yet and those who are already married. So in both cases, we are called in our own specific ways in situations to, to honor marriage. Now, we might say based off of a very surface, simplistic reading of this, that, you know, that would all mean that, you know, all I have to do is, is not cheat or not follow through with divorce and then I can hold marriage high, even as I fight constantly with my spouse or sin against them and against God in, in many different ways. But that, maybe we would be challenged to think that this is more than just what we shouldn't do. This is more than just trying to create a checklist of what's allowed and what's prohibited. And so, that, you know, that's why I like the New Living Translation of this verse. Remain faithful to one another. It puts it positively. Hold marriage high by remaining faithful to one another. And we do so by denying ourselves before our spouse, by giving in to the self-sacrifice out of love for your loved ones. And this section ends with, with this warning, right? For God will judge the, the sexually immoral and the adulterous. And that's a hard statement. It's a true statement. A hard statement, though. And, I, and again, I, I think it's important for us to read these warnings these exhortations, these instructions in light of the, the rest of the book of Hebrews. The faithful teaching on purity or sexual purity will always have warnings. But I, I like how one author puts it this way. That these warnings, however, will harmonize with the melody of God's grace to sinners. That it's a harmony with the melody of God's grace sinners. These warnings will focus most not on temporary earthly consequences, but on spiritual eternal ones. So these warnings are real, but there is forgiveness of sin. 
There is grace. There is redemption. This is what we've been drilling in these past few months through the book of Hebrews. And so this morning we are coming face to face with this particular area of the Christian life that perhaps needs sanctification, needs more God, God's presence, more Holy Spirit in that area. Marriage, whether it be our own marriages or or people in your life who you know whose marriages need help. You're called to hold it high, to honor it. Those who are single, not married, and those who are married. And then he, he pivots. He continues on to a second topic. Transitioning from perhaps coveting other individuals to coveting money. So, so hold marriage high. And here's the second point. Don't let money have a hold on your heart. I frame it this way because, you know, it's clear from the passage he explicitly says that the problem is not money, but a love of money. He writes, keep your life free from love of money. Life, life as in the, the manner, the way in which we behave or live. That's to say that is, is what we do, what we say, the questions we ask, the decisions we make, is it characterized by an obsession with money? Maybe we wouldn't use the word love because, you know, in, in our minds we might say, I don't, I don't love money. You know, I don't have romantic feelings for this piece of paper. It's not like I see myself as Scrooge McDuck diving into a pool of money and swimming around in it. But if you were to ask those who, who know you well, you know, those who, who hang around you a lot, if you were to ask them, you know, do the things I say, the way I make decisions, the things I do, are they characterized by this notion that money is the arbiter of all these things, what would they say? Because fundamentally, this is a, is a heart issue, and I, I, this is the point that I think the author of Hebrews is really driving home for us. That a love of money is a, is a heart issue, not a money issue. Not about how much money we make. It's where our heart is, which again, manifests itself in different ways, right? So because it's a heart issue, it can take many, many different forms. You know, whether it be spending money or saving money. I've been, um, I've been working with a, a vision task force these past few months to try and articulate and, and re-examine kind of a, a couple of these, these things, such as uh, clarifying our mission, our values, our, our strategy, <clears throat> and so on. And, and basically trying to look at who we are. What has God called us as Crossbridge to do? I mean, yes, to fulfill the Great Commission, uh, as all churches are, are called to do, right? But how do we as Crossbridge uniquely do that? What sets us apart from all the other churches down the road in the way that we 
uniquely make disciples and mature disciples. And so as a task force, uh, we, you know, we're trying to bring to the surface, try, trying to put a name to some of these core values or core motivations, the, things, the very things that characterize all the things that we do. And, and so, yes, you'll find in your bulletin and on the website that we do have a set of core values. But I, and we're trying to go a little bit deeper here, a bit more personal. And so these values are, are kind of like motives. These are the things that we care about as a congregation and thus characterize all the things that we do, right? As, as Crossbridge, much like any other congregation or church, we, still, we preach the word, we have children's programs, we lead worship. We do very much all these same things, but a lot of our motivations might be different. Or the, the, the things that we really care about as we do the, these things, or the, the very things that characterize these things. And so this is a brainstorming section, right? And I'm just kind of throwing out different thoughts and ideas just to see what sticks. Not to say, say that any of it might actually be, be viable, right? And one particular thing comes to mind. I'm just kind of putting it out there in the group chat, and I do my best to, to word it in the best way possible, to, to redeem the value. This is what I put down. Fiscal responsibility. Fiscal responsibility. In other words, some of us like to save money. We like a good deal. We're cheap. Now, look, honestly, I don't know, this may not actually be a motive for Crossbridge. You know, it may not actually be something that characterizes the things that we do to further God's kingdom. But I, I raise it as an example that fundamentally this is a heart issue, not a money issue. And so a love of money doesn't just mean spending money for the wrong reasons. It can also look like saving money for the wrong reasons. It's the why question. You know, lest we be like the servant in the parable who buried his talent, or the rich man in another parable that Jesus talks about who produced plentifully, and his response was, what am I going to do with all these crops? I'm just going to build a bigger barn to store it all in. And so we have to look at the reason at our heart. Do we do so? Are we saving out of fear? Out of anxiety? Out of greed? Maybe uh, that is out of a desire to want not more possessions per se that money can buy, but just more money in the account, in the bank account. Is money the king of our heart? And again, this doesn't mean that we shouldn't have honest conversations about financial need and financial responsibility about being good stewards. But again and again and again, this passage is calling us to check our hearts. Now, I'll confess that the allure of a good deal, of saving money, is incredibly satisfying and compelling. You know, it's that culture of slick deals, right? I mean, for me, the Slick Deals website is probably way higher on my top visited websites than it, than it needs to be. Not that I'm actually buying anything, right? But again, it's not whether, about whether I bought something. It's about my heart and your heart. 
And there are other ways that we demonstrate that we have this love, for lack of a better word, love of money problem. Now, we may also have a money problem. That's a separate thing. But again, love of money. So one commentator, one pastor writes this. You know, today's entire commercial economy is built on a foundation that not only encourages us to have what we want, but to want what we don't have. Is that you? You know, when someone shares a praise about, you know, a new house or, you know, a, a, you know getting into this school or getting this new gadget or gizmo, is our initial response, man, I want that too. I need that. Yeah, you know, what do we do? How do we, how do we break free from the hold that money has in our hearts? From the anxiety sometimes of feeling like we may not have enough. I remember hearing a story uh, from a mentor of mine when he was speaking at a retreat. And you see, this guy didn't, didn't grow up with a lot. He came from a very different background from a lot of us. Didn't grow up in suburban Lexington or Bedford or Andover. He had a hard childhood. And money was, was a scarcity. It was, it was an issue. So eventually he grew up and he went to college. And, and at, at that point, he was getting the scholarship money for his education. A check in the mail to be put towards his, his, his education. More money than, at that point, maybe he's ever seen before. This is the point of the story where, where I have to be careful about what I'm about to say because I'm not, I'm not advocating that, that you do what he did. Let's be clear. Because you know, what I'm about to share may be a little bit unwise, maybe a little bit sketchy. But I share because what I want us to focus on is the extent to which he went to break free from the hold that money had on his heart. Because he saw that money. And he saw in his heart that love. And so what he did when he was growing and maturing as a Christian and wrestling with, with still those old sinful desires that was still in, he saw that money. He felt the hole that it had on his heart. He took that money and each week he put it into the offering plate during Sunday service. And he shared that the first time that, that he gave, you know, trying to be generous, trying to give to, to those who, who, who needed it too, it hurt a lot. And then his response, give more. And he continued to give, and it continued to hurt. But over time, it hurt less and less until it became a joy, until he experienced freedom, true freedom. And I remember him sharing Later on, that even later on, when, when people would, would give him some money because he, he might need it, he would always immediately portion out some of it to give to someone else that he knew that was in need. And again, I, I mentioned this story, I share this story, not because I'm trying to guilt trip everyone into emptying their wallets into the offering plate, and it's probably good that we don't pass around offering bags anymore. But I, I share this story, right? Because sometimes to break free from the hold that money has on our hearts means to hold that money loosely. And of course, to spend it wisely. The passage talks about this confident contentment 
that we have when we are free from love of money. So one commentator says that this, the chief pain which pierces the heart of the lover of money is gnawing anxiety. The greedy person can never be happy, but the opposite of covetousness is contentment. Contentment with what we have comes from knowing who we have. It's a trust in the Lord. A trust in God as our provider. Not to say that we ought to be irresponsible, but the decisions that we make, whether to spend or to save or to do whatever else, comes ultimately from a trust in God. He writes, be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Our contentment is grounded in God's faithfulness to us, not the fleeting nature of money. And so then our response then is verse 6. We can then confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Same confidence, the word here used in the other 12 chapters of Hebrews, the confident hope that we have in Jesus, the confidence with which we draw near to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. God is the one who provides spiritually and materially. He is the one who cares for each and every one of us. And so what matters ultimately not what we have, but, but who we have. It starts there. And so this morning, as we begin to wrap up the book of Hebrews, a light is being shined on these two areas of our lives. These two settings where our love is being examined. Marriage and money. So we've been saved, we have been redeemed, we have been bought with a price. And so how do we live now? Hold marriage high. Hold money loosely. Spend it wisely, of course, but not letting it have a hold on our hearts. Let's pray. Gracious God, we give thanks, first and foremost, for your love to us your faithfulness to us, your generosity to us, that it might serve as an example and a motivation for how we live, how we live to serve you and to further your kingdom, how we live to to love others. We pray now for the marriages, particularly in Crossbridge, the ones, particularly the ones that are struggling. We ask that we would see more of your grace in our marriages, more of your presence, that we would honor it and see this marriage that you have blessed us with as a good thing, as a gift from you. We pray also for our hearts, that you would free us from perhaps the hold that money has on it, that that ultimately we would be relinquishing all control up to you, to trust in you with our finances and with everything else. In Christ's name we pray, amen.